Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 121, Homecoming and Arrival. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And as we continue this series thinking about the future of the relationship between American Jews and American Judaism and Israel, we are excited to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer. He is the president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America and the author of the book Shuva, The Future of the Jewish Past. And being part of an institution that is based both in Israel and in North America, the relationship between Israel and North American Jews is one of the topics that Yehuda gives a lot of thought to. So we're excited to get into this conversation. Yehuda Kurtzer, welcome back to Judaism Unbound. It's great to have you again. Great to be back. So we've been having a bunch of interesting conversations over the the last few weeks with leading thinkers about sort of, I would say, the past and the present of the relationship of American Jews and Israel. And I thought that we could continue that conversation with you, but also maybe sort of swing it a little bit in the direction, at least to start out, of looking at the future. I know that you and the Hartman Institute have a set of programs where you're trying to, in a sense, change elements of the way that American Jews are relating to Israel. And I I guess before we get into some of those, I'm wondering, where do you think the relationship between American Jews and Israel is, is heading? There are two really different issues that are playing out in the in the relationship between American Jewry and Israel and in the relationship between American Jewry and Israeli Jewry, which I think are actually two different things. Um, there, are, there are two separate issues that I see. One is, uh, one is the challenge of meaning for American Jews vis-a-vis Israel, that Israel is a less significant feature of American Jewish identity uh, and do- simply doesn't occupy the place that it once did for American Jews as an anchor of their consciousness. Uh, with the exception of the small percentage of American Jews for whom it has become a disproportionate amount of their consciousness. <laughs> um, so there's a, there's a problem of meaning, which is that it's no longer the, it's no longer the great unifier uh, or the great kind of feature of central of, of American Jewish identity in ways that it might've been uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And, um, and that that problem of meaning creates alienation for many American Jews from Israel. But the second set of the second problem is a problem of conflict, which is that for the Jews who are highly engaged with Israel or for whom Israel is a significant feature of their identity, that brings them into conflict with other Jews uh, with tremendous vitriol and anger and hostility and uh, with the state of Israel. I think the the story of alienation, the problem of meaning for for American Jews around Israel is is actually a problem of homecoming and arrival. I think it's basically a good story for both communities. American Jews are at home in America. I know that's a lot of what this podcast thinks about, is what does the Jewish future look like uh, in America when you actually take seriously that you're at home um, and you're not dependent uh, vicariously on, on the Zionist story for what, for what Judaism is about. Uh, and Israeli Jews are also at home and far less dependent philanthropically and politically on American Jews as they once were. And it's very hard to imagine, you know, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, when there are more generations of Jews who are simply pursuing different destinies, 
that it's going to remain intuitive how these communities are supposed to be in relationship with each other. And on the conflict side, you know, as long as there remains an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I, I don't believe there's any reason um, to think that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is going to end soon, the the hostility between different sides of in, in the American Jewish community about the conflict and about how it implicates them, all of that is going to intensify. So, you know, the bad news is I think the trends that we're seeing now are indicators of uh, of where we're headed in Jewish life. I think the you know, the one of the questions is, are there things that we can do about it? But if you would ask me, what is it going to look like? I think it's going to look a lot like what we're seeing today. You know, I know a lot of times we talk about Judaism as a family, and I know that you've thought and written about this, but it's a very natural thing for families a few generations later to be much more distant from one another. I mean, sure, would it be nice if I knew my fifth cousins, but the reality is that I don't. And most people aren't sort of aren't aren't mourning that. I mean, it, you know, at, at best, you have your uncle who really loves doing genealogy and who comes to the family get togethers and shows you who all these people are. And it's really interesting. But that's about what it is. And And I guess that there was a sort of fantasy version of what a relationship between American Jews and Israel might look like at the time that Israel was being created. And, and of course, that makes a lot of sense that that fantasy version would be out there because it was something new and people don't necessarily think it all through. But in retrospect, it sort of feels to some extent like what we're seeing is just natural. And I wonder if it's something that we should be spending so much time regretting or if there's a different lens through which to look at it. So I don't know that it's helpful to describe what was the case in the middle of the 20th century as a fantasy version of Israel, if in fact, for much of world Jewry, they were much more familiarly connected to each other. So it wasn't actually a fantasy story, it was still empirically more of a family story than it is today. Keep in mind that in the middle of the 20th century, the project of Jewish nationalism and Jewish sovereignty was widely understood to be a Jewish existential need, and I think it still is. Um, however, we are, you know, by the virtue of our comfort in America, and the, actually the the virtue of Israel's success is that we have um, we've created real distance from Jewish memory of vulnerability in the middle of the 20th century. And so now to be able to say, I don't remember why we needed this, but I don't need it anymore, is actually a kind of willful construction of a new type of memory that actually mitigates against what was the dominant memory experience for Jews in the middle of the 20th century. That said, I basically do agree that I'm not sure um, anymore that the language of family is helping us because more often than not, when people use the language of family, um, they make two category errors. One is they use family and, and family as a bridge to peoplehood as a means of like as a blunt instrument against other people who don't think who are not treating family correctly. And if, if the only way in which you use peoplehood is to hit other people, that's not a good understanding of peoplehood. Uh, and the, the second, um, the second flaw in the family thing is that oftentimes people who use that metaphor most, uh, forget that families are really complicated, that we all have families of birth and families of choice that family um, is a something that you leave and then construct your own family. Um, and, and oftentimes there's a kind of hegemony of, of, the, of the family narrative, which is used to say, since this is your family, you have a very clear set of obligations. And what they're basically saying is it's not really family. It's like your obligation to your parent or your obligation to your child, which is a much more narrow construction of family. 
I'm not that interested in that. And I think for all the reasons that you said, it doesn't hold sway for the overwhelming majority of American Jews and Israeli Jews who are actually not family to one another. I love that you brought up the idea of how memory has shifted over the last, uh, I guess, half half century to a little bit more. And I, for those who didn't listen to your first appearance on the show, I mean, it was called History and Memory, and it was about major themes in your book, Shuva. And I guess I'd love to expand a little bit on that and and dive into what what you're getting at and and what distinctions you draw between history and memory, because so much of how folks engage with with whether we call it a conflict or whatever this situation with Israel and Palestine and Palestinians and Israelis is, there there's constantly this question of different narratives and there's constantly different understandings of what constitute like the facts on the ground. And so I guess I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about that. What like how are different groups of maybe American Jews, but maybe more broadly, how are how are different groups of people considering the history of of the last 70 years of Israel and America and Palestinians and how might they differ from other groups? So I think we could probably track this along two different, um, two different trajectories. One is the history of the history and the second is the history of the memory. Um, the history of the history is really interesting because there are, there are a handful of, um, of good histories of modern Israel, but much less than you would actually expect. Uh, given the amount of attention and focus that gets devoted to this place. Um, so there's a disproportionate amount of writing about Israel-Palestine, but very little, uh, very little history, in part because I think, uh, I think this is hinted in your question, I think the, the perpetual problem of writing a history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is where do you start? Um, and for the, the minute that one side says, I'm going to start in 1947, the other side says, okay, can you start you know, 30 years earlier when you showed up before that happened. And then the minute that I, okay, well, let's start with the Nakba. And I'm like, well, can we start with the, the pogrom in, in Hebron? Um, so, and, and, then, and then you're basically back at, you know, Abraham and the, and the cave of Machpelah. So the, the, there's, a, there's a history writing problem, um, which is part of the issue at play here. It's not just multiple narratives, uh, which is, of course, true. It's also a kind of unwillingness to set out the terms of what we're talking about when we talk about history. But the second side is like, how do we track memory? And here, I, this is, I think, the most interesting thing that's, that's going on right now for American Jews around the conflict, which is, you know, there was this prevailing ethos post-Holocaust that you're not allowed to draw interpretive, ethical, and moral lessons um, or religious lessons, lessons from the Holocaust. That was an idea that had tremendous currency and was never actually adhered to. And I think there are three dominant moral lessons that American Jews are, are insisting as the dominant moral lesson of the Holocaust. One, as it relates to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, one is don't be a victim, uh, which dictates uh, a, like a really significant feature uh, of the American Jewish organizational landscape. That's what Peter Beinart wrote about uh, in his book, the, the famous photo uh, in, in Malcolm Honline, I think's office of the F-16s over Auschwitz. Uh, Israeli F-16s over Auschwitz, which is um, um, the message of this, had we had this kind of power, this wouldn't happen to us, um, and, and therefore it won't. There's a second moral lesson, which I think is rising in terms of its currency on the far left in the Jewish community, which is that the dominant lesson of the Holocaust is don't be a perpetrator. Uh, if you go to the, you know, for instance, 
some of the press releases from Jewish Voice for Peace use this language uh, around Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day, use this language pretty clearly that the main lesson of the Holocaust is don't be a perpetrator. And then the dominant American lesson, forget about Jewish, but the dominant American lesson of the Holocaust morally uh, is don't be a bystander. And the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington is constructed to that um, to that moral message. Now, the the more sophisticated reading, I think, is those are actually not in conflict with each other. <laughs> One can believe at the same time that you can have multiple moral lessons, which are don't be a bystander, don't be a perpetrator, and don't be a victim. Um, but in a climate in which memory is contested, and in which there's some assumptions that one of these will actually translate into public policy, it turns each of these positions into cruder caricatures of themselves than they actually need to be. I want to take that into the world that you laid out in terms of the, um, you know, the, the, the large majority of American Jews for whom the, the question really is, basically, why should I care at all about Israel? You know, how does it play a role in my life? How should a different country, you know, I, I know that even to put it in these terms is offensive to a lot of folks who, who kind of were, were plugged into the, the whole emergence of Israel in the early years of its existence. You know, how could you possibly ask the question of, you know, why should I care about some country that's distant from us? And yet, I think it's, it's critical to acknowledge that at a basic level, that is what a lot of people are, are asking. And then we have in the world of those Jews, which is a small minority of the Jewish community that is very much plugged into this question, one of the emerging dimensions in the last few years especially has been the the level of vitriol in the discourse about it so i guess the the question is why can't we look at this in a way that says look these these young people are so committed to the notion that israel matters you know and they're so committed to that that they're very very upset about various things that are going on so can't we sort of um be committed to a level of discourse that says we're going to take that as our starting position. By the way, that that's maybe where that metaphor of family could be more powerful, because here are members of our family who care about the same things that we care about, and why should we act towards them in a way that basically drives them away from the family? So first, the question of whether it's offensive to Jews of one generation to even ask the question of why should other Jews care about Israel? Because if you remember a period of vulnerability, then that question might come across as, as coarse or, um, or offensive. Uh, I've found, and this is all anecdotal, but um, really in, in the travels that I'm doing and teaching I'm doing, oftentimes for older lay audiences, there's a greater receptivity to engage with the question of why actually should my children and grandchildren care about this than there was previously because of a recognition that I've been trying to coax people to, but I think people have come to on their own, that you actually cannot convince uh, your grandchildren that they should care about something um, that's important to you because of your memories. <laughs> that actually is not how memory works. Um, memory only works when it gets translated into compelling narrative and narrative that translates into obligation. That's, that's, that's like the Torah. <laughs> Memory turns into narrative, which turns into obligation. So I would say, first of all, I think it's okay for us to be in a conversation about why should Israel matter, even in the presence of people who have solved for that problem, because I think they are starting to come around to recognize that their own technologies of conveying the story uh, aren't working. 
So what is the argument? Why should American Jews continue to care about Israel if they're not? Essentially, the question is, why should American Jews continue to care about Israel if they don't have to? My own answer to that question, uh, which is for me satisfying and, and maybe others, for others not, um, is that I think is, the state of Israel is just about the most interesting thing that ever happened to the Jewish people. Uh, and it happened, relatively speaking, in our lifetime. And it is still malleable and formable. And it implicates us. Uh, whether we not, we like it or not. Uh, it implicates us because roughly half of the population of the Jewish people live there. We, the Jewish people, went from being geographically extremely diverse to essentially having two poles of, of Jewish uh, population by the, by the late 20th century. That's a massive shift, but it means that the population concentration is enormous. So if you care about Judaism, I think that means you care about this idea of the Jewish people, and a lot of Jewish people are there. Um, it implicates us because the Jewish people became um, recognized as a member of the family of nations starting in the middle of the 20th century. And therefore, what the state of Israel does, does implicate who the Jewish people are in the world, like it or not. So I don't believe that the prime minister of Israel speaks for the Jews like he sometimes wants to. But I also don't believe that he doesn't have an argument that he does. <laughs> There's some claim of if he is the elected official of a Jewish government, of a Jewish state, and that's recognized in the family of nations, we have to kind of take that seriously. And because and I think this is the big one, the state of Israel is basically the juxtaposition of Jewish fantasy about uh, what we have to bring to the world with the first major stage of opportunity to figure that out. What does it mean to, to be spending 2000 years writing a legal tradition when it's not most of it is not livable, but it's all written under the premise of the imaginative scenario <laughs> One day we're going to be in charge. And when we're in charge, uh, is our stuff good? Is it going to work? For Hartman, that was Zionism. Zionism was the encounter between aspirations and reality. And therefore, the moral responsibility of Zionism was to figure out whether the content of Jewish tradition, the ideas of Jewish tradition could actually stand up to, the, to the, our imagination of what we were about. You know, and the other piece that you mentioned, Dan, which is Essentially, why does the establishment get so mad when young people are hyper-involved with Israel, but with a politics that are opposing to theirs? Shouldn't it be good news that they are actually engaged with Israel? So I think there are a couple of things at play. First of all, I think when you scratch below the surface, I believe that the establishment is mostly a construct of the people who dislike it. And I think it serves mostly the establishment's critics to keep talking about the American Jewish establishment. So that's number one. Um, what that means is, that there's a lot of anxiety in that system. And anytime people probe that anxiety, including by probing the orthodoxy of what it means to be pro-Israel, you're going to get an anxious response. I think in certain sectors of the establishment, it's not just that they are sympathetic to the argument that you're making, but it's them. You know, there are rabbis at the APAC conference whose kids are outside at the If Not Now protest. That's that's already happening. Um, and so you talk about like complexity of the family, that's, that's already happening. Uh, but a group of people come around and say, we want to agitate against the community's orthodoxy. It's not surprising that you're going to get anxious responses. And even though, even though you want to say, aren't we proud of these kids that they grew up and they care about Israel? That's not, that's not so easy. I've been flashing and thinking since a little while back ago in the conversation, I've been you know, pondering on the word interesting. So you you described Israel as interesting, and it and it was interesting. It, it was it, it was fascinating to me, not because it struck me as wrong or off base, but because it struck me as correct. And yet I don't 
hear in almost any corners that frame of argument of like why we should connect. I don't hear almost anybody from any direction saying this is actually really interesting. And I think part of that actually it's similar to what we were saying about the Holocaust. I mean, it's, it's not the same level, but it's, it feels like you said, coarse or passionless to, to relate to a very emotional question, which Israel, Palestine, et cetera, is for a lot of people with the word interesting. It feels like you're painting over a bunch of really deep questions and concerns and like, oh, I want to read a book about this or something. But I think if a lot of us are honest with ourselves, a lot of what takes us to this situation, in addition to if we're Jewish, our heritage and memory, et cetera, is the fact that it's interesting. And so like what that got me thinking about is what made me reach a place where like interesting is strange around Israel and Palestine. And and what I think the answer is, is how I was educated around Israel. So I like, this got me to the question of education, um, whether it's in secondary settings like Sunday schools or in some, some situations in day schools. And I guess I'd love to hear from you, like what, uh, this is a shift of gears in a sense, but I think it relates to all of these questions so far about how people are learning about history and memory, et cetera. What are some of the bright spots and critiques you'd, you'd think about with how we educate around Israel? Because I think that plays directly into where the future's headed. Yeah, I suppose the word interesting is a little bit light. Uh, it's like <laughs> I had a high school English teacher who took off points if you said things like special. She's like, no, no, that's, <laughs> not, a, that's not, a, it's not a useful adjective. And I understand, um, I, you know, partly I use the word interesting because it's jarring to remind people that like, if you care, like, okay, you say you don't want to connect to Israel for X, Y, and Z reason, but tell me something. Do you care about a conversation about Jews in power? Do you care about the question about, like, do you care about the intersection between Judaism and democratic values? Do you care about what Judaism has to say about human rights? Do you care about the idea of um, Jewishness in the public space? Uh, do you care about Jewish multiculturalism and ethnic um, diversity and artistic production. If you care about all those things and you say you don't want to have anything to do with the state of Israel, you're basically saying I'm going to take the biggest data set where all of those questions are being negotiated and take them out of the story. And then you're actually not that interested in those things. <laughs> um, that's why I'm using the language of interesting. Uh, look, I think that there are, there are unquestionably, there are strides um, that have been made in Jewish education. There are a whole bunch of players in this field who have said, um, who have introduced the language of complexity. Uh, sometimes it's a, a even complexity is a double-edged sword. Complexity, as my colleague Josh Layden has written about, is not enough. Complexity has to be bridged to responsibility. And sometimes the, the, when people teach complexity, what they're, they're actually teaching people that it's too complicated for them to do anything about it, and therefore they have to return back to a place of loyalty or abdication. And that's the problem with complexity on its own sake. Um, it has to be more than that. It has, to, it has to bridge to, okay, this is complicated. What's your role? in fixing it or what's your role in, in, in seeing difference. My basic critique uh, of the world of Israel education, and I, as I said, I think it is getting better. I, you know, I use a, a template that uh, my, my colleague Ray Ringel introduced me to of like, what, what is effective public speaking is defined by the, what's the affect of the behavioral and the cognitive. The affective is the emotional response that you elicit in your listeners, the behavioral, what you get them to do, and the cognitive, what you get them to understand. And, um, and my basic critique of Israel education is that it's focused heavily on the affective and the behavioral. Uh, it's driven by those agendas. We want to elicit a particular emotional response, positive or critical, or we're trying to get people to do something, advocate, lobby, give money, um, go to Israel, do a whole bunch of behaviors. 
and that there's enormously little, like it's almost vacant uh, in the place of the cognitive. Where, where, and, and, and think about what cognitive Israel education would look like that was actually divorced from the affective and the behavioral. What, if, what would it mean to study Israel without being driven by the desire for a particular emotional response or to study Israel where the goal wasn't to then do something with what you studied. Um, now, it doesn't mean that in a complex educational system, you, don't, you can't ultimately reconnect these dots. But it does mean when you do cognitive-based Israel education, it's going to have to set up its own goals and benchmarks that are about learning um, and that are, not about, um, that are not using other goals that, um, uh, that this becomes instrumental towards. You can't even talk about what Israel is succeeding or failing at until you have an understanding of what it is um, and what it's seeking to do. Um, its own measurements of what does success and failure look like as a Jewish and democratic state. And that's the, that's the arena that I think, um, I think we, could, we collectively could be a lot better at. What I'd love to ask related to that is that in not just in educational spheres, but in all sorts of Jewish spheres, there's a frame of of, quote, loving Israel. And I want to bring that up not as something that's bad, not as something that's good, um, but as something that exists, that the primary goal of Israel, I, I don't know the right word, stuff, I mean, the education, the advocacy, etc., all of it, is to create an emotional feeling of love for Israel. And that love, I think, in many in many settings isn't entirely independent from um, from knowledge of Israel, but honestly, like it's not clear to me that if somebody reaches a place of love, but not a place of basic literacy around Israel, that that would be sort of a failure. And as I talk with folks um, like each of you, where I look at the screen and there's big old cabinets of books in the background, and and I go to most Jewish homes and there's books everywhere I look, the idea that we wouldn't, the, the, the idea that we would in any realm of, of learning seek just primarily or exclusively to create an emotion and not this deep wrestling with facts and with history and with memory, et cetera. Um, it's, it's jarring to me. And so I guess I just love to hear about this idea of loving Israel and what you think about how we should or shouldn't be engaging with that as sort of a Jewish value. It's a, it's a great question. I, um, you know, I'm tempted to like pull out book of Deuteronomy and study together the, the biblical commandment to love God, um, with all of your heart and all of your might and all of your soul. And then later on in the same paragraph, the, one of the expressions that you do in order to do that, either to, to get to that place or to demonstrate your love is Vishinantam Levanecha, you teach it to your children. In other words, that study is actually an activity that propagates love. So in your own framing, what's the relationship between what we know about something and what we learn about something and, and we love it is actually, that runs pretty deep in our tradition. So I, I, I have a little bit of resentment around the love conversation too, because for the same reason as of my resentment around the language of family, it's a, it becomes a blunt instrument. You, you obviously don't love Israel enough. I remember speaking to an Israeli intellectual a few years ago and, um, and, and, and asked him, like, why did he think it was okay for him to criticize Israel, but not for the people who he was criticizing for not criticizing Israel correctly? And he <laughs> said, well, because I, I love Israel. Um, and I found that to be basically like a rabbit hole. You know, what are you going to interrogate? What's in people's hearts? That's not a rule for discourse. Um, also, like, 
people are allowed to have opinions on things even before they have an emotional relationship to them. Also, emotional relationships are complicated. How I understand love, how you understand love, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I share with you some of the, the criticism around it. I, I would say if I was going to replace love uh, in, in, in this, in this uh, terminologically, I would say let's, let's look for the language of relationship. You know, I want people to, I do want people to be in relationship with the state of Israel for all the reasons that we talked about earlier. I, I think this is an important project. I think it means a lot to the Jewish people. I want them to take seriously that they are in relationship with their fellow Jews <clears throat> who live uh, between the between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. And that means all of the Jews who live between the Jordan and the Mediterranean and peoplehood is messy. And some of the people who are part of your peoplehood, you like and don't like and disagree with. And some people don't think that you're actually part of your people. But yeah, that's the terms of a, of a complicated um, network based um, identity. That is um, that is what Judaism has been for a long time. So I'm comfortable saying, like, let's get out of let's get a little bit out of the love business. I think part of the reason um our educational systems gravitate towards love is because there's an, a developmental assumption, which I think is false, that you can't get people to be in relationship to something complicated before they love it. I don't think that's true. Um, I think, um, I think that, that, that is also a discourse of anxiety. I don't know how to talk about something complicated to young people. So instead of figuring out the developmentally appropriate way to introduce complexity, I'll focus on love and then eventually get the complexity. And honestly, none of our human relationships work that way. <laughs> People rarely fall in love with something without knowing anything about it. Um, and they rarely fall in love with some notion that they're engaging with something that is perfect and not complicated. I think actually human beings, um, complexity is actually a driver of the most sophisticated relationships that we have. So um, if, we could sub if we could just take out love and talk about relationship, I think we would get a lot more to what you're talking about. And we could be more comfortable communally doing what you said, which is read and study and talk about Israel because we care about it and it means a lot to us. And our, our relationship status with it is complicated. I want to sort of take this a little bit to to a, perhaps a parallel track, um, and I don't know if this is something that you struggle with in your work at the Hartman Institute North America. You know, I think it's really interesting because a lot of Israel-based organizations have an American branch that's basically a, a fundraising arm, uh, but the Hartman Institute North America is its own its own institution that has a staff of educators and that has sort of its own work with the American Jewish community. And so perhaps this actually, you know, my thinking actually connects with what you think about. But I've been reluctant to do this series on Israel and Judaism Unbound, in part because um, it, it's it's a dangerous thing to talk about. People get upset and they and and there's all kinds of, you know, emails that I'm sure we'll be getting in all directions. And And the truth is, is that for me, what I'm really trying to figure out is what would an American Judaism look like? And and I've been convinced that it's the right thing to do to sort of explore Israel on the podcast, because that's part of an American Judaism. I mean, to some kind of relationship or some kind of opposition, whatever it might be, but it's part of being a Jew in America is to relate to Israel in some fashion. You can't sort of just say as if it doesn't exist. At the same time, what I'm much more interested in is this question of, you know, what would an American Judaism look like that was, you know, 99% of the time focusing on America and our experience here in America. And, you know, when we describe the most interesting things to ever happen to the Jewish people, you know, I, I think that 
uh, being in a country with full freedoms and with, uh, you know, with with ourselves being generally in a state of economic well-being, et cetera, et cetera, is also one of the most interesting things that's happened in the history of the Jewish people. And of course, the connection between the two is interesting to explore. But sometimes I worry that until we really know in a deep way who we are and who we want to be as American Jews, we get sidetracked into this Israel conversation and we never come out of it again. One of the things that I, that I feel strongest about uh, that's embedded in your question is the belief that the story of American Jewish thriving and the story of what's going on in the state of Israel are somehow, um, there's somehow a zero-sum game in terms of what it means to invest in one project or the other. Um, and I understand why someone would come to the conclusion looking at the amount of um, Jews and Jewish community institutions that are constantly talking about the state of Israel to say, either you're engaged with that project or you're engaged with this project, but I actually, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me at all. The book that I'll probably never write, but I will spend much of the next 10 years still writing, um, is exactly on this question of, could you construct a vision for American Judaism that pushes past the, the currently two existent options that, um, that American Jewish theorists talk about, which is either an American Judaism that is totally enthralled with um, and driven by Zionism in the state of Israel, or an American Judaism that needs to reject Zionism and the, and the central pole and to animate um, the, a vision of American, America as the New Jerusalem. You know, Karen Aviv and David Schneer uh, wrote a great book a number of years back on this, on diasporas. Um, and this was their argument. And it, it actually, I, I used the book, I taught it when I was teaching at Brandeis. Um, I think there's great stuff in it. And I was frustrated by this, that, that there was a kind of inevitability in their argument that in order to shift the center of gravity for the Jewish people from Israel, it had to be moved to America. Then you say, oh, I'm now, when I think about myself as an American Jew, I think that somehow I'm involved in a homecoming and arrival project that's about me as divorced from the state of Israel. So let me stop talking about Israel, forgetting that one of the key data points of why you are who you are as an American Jew is because of the story of the state of Israel. And I also then feel like, well, wouldn't that, doesn't it also harm us to say, I have all of these resources and assets that the American Jewish community has compiled over the past 50 years, the assets of, of affluence and influence and power and privilege. And I meantime have a number of experiments that the American Jewish community has been doing on the integration between Jewish values and democratic values in the public square, square in America, which paradoxically or ironically is exactly what the state of Israel desperately needs right now, which is more human rights Torah and more democracy Torah and more, um, more of what we've acquired in the American Jewish community about um, what it means to be in relationship to the other. And by the way, there's all sorts of things that the state of Israel has been experimenting with and creating, which we in American Judaism are starved for, including diverse ethnic, multicultural, cultural production. Like the cultural production in America is interesting for by Jews, but cultural production in Israel is like off the charts. Um, and not to mention like what it means to actually run a society. You want to talk about Jewish politics? What state, state of Israel is not great what's going on, but it's a great laboratory for Jewish politics. So to, I, I guess my, you can sense that I get worked up on this. Dan. I, I really would hate the idea that like, oh, there's so much Israel. Let's focus on the American Jewish project instead of acknowledging that 
we have the gift of living at a moment when these projects are taking place simultaneously and there's more to be gained by weaving them together than there is by constructing them as totally autonomous. But I do think there is a, a sense of a zero-sum dimension to it in terms of the bandwidth that people have in their lives, most most people. And, you know, like that that's the part where I feel like once somebody has a really sort of solid sense of of themselves as a person, right? Then you can then you can seek a, a spouse, you know, or whatever, right? But if you if you try to sort of do both at the same time, I think often you do neither, and th- that's the that's just the part that in the sort of in the the realism of the experience that I'm trying to sort of figure out here feels like you know it's 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 that 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 there's some that there's some work that is not being done in terms of the of American Jews sort of having a strong self understanding as American Jews, even something as basic as understanding the history of the diaspora in Jewish history and sort of at least making the argument that as many of the important developments in the history of Judaism happened outside of the land of Israel as inside the land of Israel, even sort of fully uh, grasping that history it, it would be a sort of a, a basic self-understanding that would allow you to enter into a relationship with Israel in a different way, and that most Jews in, in the diaspora don't have that. And so, you know, maybe we ought to sort of find some institutions that are focusing only on that, right, as opposed to sort of that every institution, maybe this is what I'm trying to say, that every institution should feel pressure to integrate Israel stuff into, into their project. Yeah, if you had a healthy ecosystem and you were able to say this is thriving over here and we need to make sure that this piece this this patch of you know of grass also gets watered then I understand what you're saying. Um and I think from your perspective you may be looking at the ecosystem and saying, "Oh my god, there's totally disproportionate attention on the Israel side and some and some needs to get there needs to be a flourishing over here." Our institution's been engaged as you alluded to in in a kind of experiment to this effect, which is um, exact building an American Jewish institution that's wedded to an Israeli institution and all of the ways in which sometimes we're talking about Israel as American Jews and sometimes we're talking about Israel as Israeli Jews and sometimes we're talking about America as American Jews and sometimes we're talking about America as Israeli Jews and weaving them together. Just one thought experiment though to think about Dan. Um, instead, of con- instead of thinking about like, okay, some projects we focus on Israel and some projects we fo- focus on America, what would happen if you basically said, Let's remap the Jewish organizational system or Jewish education to focus on content areas or major commitments. So this institution or this educational um, environment is interested in the intersection between Judaism and human rights. And in the intersection between Judaism and human rights, here's the data in America and here's the data in Israel. What that would suggest that like and you could take any example culture, language, power. What I think is exciting about it, I'm not proposing that we actually do that yet. Um, I think it's a way of, by the way, I think it's a a theory to recurricularize Israel education um, and Jewish education. You know, imagine if you have a Jewish high school where each year you take a topic, one year is power. You study Bible sources and rabbinic sources and American Jewish sources and Israeli sources um, and so forth. Um, there's There's an educational theory behind it. But I want to use it just as a thought experiment to say, instead of saying our project is about America or our project is about Israel, what are the big values or big conversations that we want to be involved in? And where is their data in America and where is their data in Israel that's fueling it? I, to me, that feels like a huge pathway towards bridging this divide. 
What I think is built into that, although I don't want to speak for you, but like what I think is built into that from my understanding of what you just said was um, Israel not only as an end, as as like a an independent, but Israel as a means towards towards the conversation on power, towards the conversation on human rights, towards the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that that rewiring, I, I, I share your desire for it. I think it's it's a grand and big, I, I want us to consider how grand a process that is to get there because I think so much, like we have, I mean, even us, like we, we have thought about this, this series of episodes as about the relationship to Israel. We haven't thought about, we're talking about American Judaism and power. And because of that, we're looking at a bunch of conversations on Israel. Like that, that does feel healthier to me. And it feels like a, a, a fantastic way not to sensationalize Israel emotionally in the ways we talked about before, while still having that involved and still bringing it in, in the, in the context of a greater, I don't, I don't mean greater in like the more, in the context of a larger, conversation about power about etc um that that feels fantastic and i i wanted to underscore uh so that was a thought that wasn't a question so you know our project the i engage project basically starts from the supposition that the discourses of judaism and the discourse of the state of israel have to be rewound together not to make everything Judaism Israel and not to make everything Israel Judaism, but to argue exactly this point, which is when you divorce the two, then Judaism sounds like a series of disconnected ethics and values, and Israel sounds like politics. And we actually really want to wind them together. And in that regard, you know, nothing that I said couldn't have been said by many early Zionist theories theorists prior to the creation of the state of Israel. The state of Israel was absolutely imagined as a means towards much larger ends. The level of imagination by Zionist theorists went down post the creation of the state of Israel because the bulk of the energy of Zionism moved from a project of imagination to a project of loyalty. But when the when the pre-state Zionism was about like exactly what you said, like the language of means as opposed to a language of ends. You read a Chad Ha'am, you read all these folks, they're talking about grander visions for Judaism, the Jewish people, that a state, um, if they even imagined one, was totally meant to be instrumental for. So a lot of what I'm talking about is rehabilitating a much more imaginative, pluralistic, all-encompassing vision of Zionism, which absolutely incorporates American Judaism as a piece of that story and no longer treats the state of Israel as the kind of accomplishment of all of our hopes and dreams. So I, so before I said that I like was latching onto this word interesting, and then in one of your answers, I latched onto one of the last things you said, which was that the relationship status is complicated between the U.S. and Israel. And I heard that, I think you did this intentionally, I heard that as a Facebook reference to the, the relationship status thing you have on Facebook where you can put, it's complicated. And uh, I didn't want that to just skirt by without exploring because I know that you have, that you hold your presence on Facebook to to be an important part of how you can ask a lot of these big questions, whether it's about Israel, whether it's about American Judaism, whether it's about the weaving between the two. Um, and I wanted to hear from you a little bit about that because so much of the dis uh, discourse about the discourse, like the history, of the, so much of our discourse about discourse is that, oh, the digital spaces are so catastrophic and people can't talk to each other and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like you have been able to build a context where that's not the case. And so 
uh, highlighting Israel in particular, but maybe more broadly as well, how do you conceptualize the role of Facebook in creating a healthier Jewish ecosystem? You know, theorizing on social media is such a weird thing because the it starts being, I think the most successful social media presences are organic. And then you start to like theorize what you're actually doing on social media and it starts screwing it up <laughs> because the more planful it is, you know, you get a social media consultant, suddenly you're inauthentic. Um, uh, I, I've been, I'm fascinated by these media. I feel like all forms of technology, um, that technology is basically morally agnostic. People got very mad about the Facebook, uh, the controversies about Facebook and data. My feeling was this was never private. This was just a shift of the public square. And it provided opportunities to think about the public square differently. But if you thought that this was a conversation between friends, you were sorely mistaken. That's a starting point for what I think this could be useful for. If we live through a period of time when this, the public square is really messy, and people aren't talking to each other. Um, and it's actually really violent in terms of the way that people, when people do talk in public, the way that they talk, what does it look like to create even um, imaginary network-based and, um, and totally virtual communities of people who are actually interested in having a conversation? Uh, and that's what I'm, I, I find amazing. It's weird because you find yourself in conversation much more. I, at least I do. I'm in conversation with much more with people who I'm actually not friends with and I don't see um, than I am with the people who like live in my community or in some cases in my house. Um, that's weird. Um, but um, but it increasingly, especially post-election, feels like a moral responsibility to be to be trying to conduct conversation differently. And I think part of the, the some of the strategies that that um, that are critical and, and, and I think intuitive are uh, ask, you ask a lot of questions. Um, people think that in an in a, in a ideologically polarized time that what they should be doing is producing coherent ideologies, but what actually the countercultural response is to actually take a, a questioning posture. Um, ask questions, start conversations, don't flame people. Like those types of activities, like it, it's some, and I, I think, Lex, we've interacted a lot online. Like it's, it's, into, it's, it's compelling. People are like, oh, wow, I'm like in a salon uh, and I have to work hard if I'm in a salon to actually articulate my ideas better because I'm not going to be able to get away with it. Not because people are going to flame me necessarily, but because I actually want to enrich the conversation. I want to be enriched by it. You know, I, I find it to be like a window, of, um, a window for optimism that the silent majority is actually still interested in engaging seriously in conversation, that the posture of protest um, and um, and solidarity and ideological conviction and moral purity is is very loud, but it's not actually what people really crave. And I think we have a lot of work to do to to continue to cultivate those spaces in response to that. Well, thank you so much, Yehuda Kurtzer, for joining us for coming back for a second episode. It's a it's a great chance to check in, and hopefully, we'll have you on again in the future. Appreciate it. Thank you both. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks to all of you out there listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we want to close it out in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can hit us up on Twitter at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can always visit our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us with a financial donation, either on a one-time basis or a monthly recurring basis, and you can do either of those at JudaismUnbound.com donate. 
So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>